I, uh, I want to uh, spend a little time this morning and maybe even next Monday as we talk, uh, talking to you a little bit about the subject of spiritual warfare. I'm being asked a lot about it this, seemingly this year, and it has to do with some books that were written by a guy named Frank Peretti. Have any of you read those books, uh, This Present Darkness and things like that? Uh, that's very, very popular material. In fact, it's even popular in secular bookstores, and <clears throat> it's raising a lot of questions about the whole matter of spiritual warfare. What's really involved in dealing with Satan? What's involved in dealing with demons? And I thought we might kind of dig into that a little bit. This is going to be a lot like a Bible study, not like a, a sermon or anything, but just kind of take you through some of the things in the Bible to help you understand that. What is going on in spiritual warfare? What's it all about? What is Satan doing? What are demons doing? What are we supposed to be doing? How do we respond to that? How does, how does a spiritual victory come to the front in the middle of that warfare? There is a verse I'd like to use as a starting point, and before we're done, we'll come back to that. 1 Timothy chapter 1. You might want to open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to share with you regarding what... Paul says to Timothy in verse 18, 1 Timothy 1.18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, here it comes, that by them you may fight the good fight. Paul says to Timothy, you need to fight the good fight. Paul also says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. Now, what is he talking about here? You remember um, last Friday, I think it was, a week ago when I spoke, I talked about 2 Timothy chapter 2 where it says that we are soldiers. What does it mean to fight the good fight? Paul did it. Paul said, Timothy, you've got to do it. What does it mean to be a soldier? We also find that in Ephesians chapter 6, we have to wear armor for this fight. If we're going to fight against the wiles of the devil, we have to take on the whole armor of God. So obviously we're involved in some kind of spiritual war. Now let's see if we can't find out what it's all about. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 12, and let's start to get a fix on the spiritual war. Revelation chapter 12. It says in verse 1 that a great sign appeared in heaven, and of course John is having a number of significant visions at this particular point on the Isle of Patmos as God by his Spirit is revealing this truth to him. And a sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and pain, to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And here we have the staging of the spiritual war. First of all, you have a woman giving birth to a child, and then you have a dragon who is seen as the enemy. We're not going to go into all the details, except to say that the woman is Israel, the child is the Messiah, and the dragon is Satan. That sets the basic spiritual battle in place. 
It is a warfare between the Messiah, Christ, and Satan. Then it tells us in verse 4 that the tail of the great dragon swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. What a graphic picture. Israel, God's chosen woman, of course, as the nation through which the Messiah would come. Finally comes down to Mary. She gives birth to, birth to the child. The dragon is ready to devour the child immediately when he's born. And who was the instrument that he was going to use to kill the child? Herod, who massacred all of the babies. But he failed. And the child did his work, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended back into heaven and was seated at the throne of God on his right hand. The warfare goes on, however, between Satan and Christ. You will notice in verse 4 that when the enemy fell, he swept a third of the stars of heaven. What that means is that one third of all the angels went with Satan in his rebellion. When he said, I will be like the Most High, and when he said, I will ascend to the highest place, pride was lifted up in his heart. And because of that, he sinned. He was Lucifer, the son of the morning, the greatest of the angels. And God cast him out of heaven. But when he went, he didn't go alone. There were others who went into his rebellion. How many were there? Well, we don't know. In Revelation 5.11, it says that the angels number 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now, if you want to multiply 10,000 times 10,000 times 1,000 times 1,000, you still won't get the number. The reason it says 10,000 times 10,000 is because 10,000 is the highest number for which there is a word in ancient Greek. Since in those days, mathematics never went higher than 10,000, they had no word for anything beyond 10,000, so they took the word murion, murion times murion, and murion of murion. And we don't know how many angels there are, but a third of them went in the rebellion with Satan. Now, of all of those angels that were cast to the earth, they fall into two categories, actually three categories. Some of them are bound permanently. According to Jude, Jude 6, some of the fallen angels are in everlasting chains. So they're not an issue in the world. They're in everlasting chains. You say, which of the ones are in everlasting chains? I believe the ones who sinned in Genesis 6. The ones who came into human bodies in some supernatural invasion, cohabitated with women, and produced some kind of strange hybrid creature that God had to drown in the flood. Those were chained in everlasting chains. They're not an issue. God chained them permanently. Some are temporarily chained. And according to Revelation chapter 9, during the time of the Great Tribulation, hell will open up and spit them out. And they will join the loose ones and run over the earth. And that's why the tribulation will have such escalating evil because of the release of the temporarily bound fallen angels. The third category is the ones who've been loose all the time. 
And they're running around all over the place. And those are the ones with which we, we, in this time and place, must contend. How many are there? I don't know. Less than a third, because some are temporarily bound and some are eternally bound. So it's less than a third, which means that the host of God, the holy angels, far outnumber the fallen demons who move around in the world. The Bible, when it refers to the word demons, is referring to the loose ones. And so we are engaged, according to Paul in Ephesians 6, not with flesh and blood, but with what? Principalities, powers, the rulers of this darkness, spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. Principalities, powers, rulers, those are all titles for ranks of demons. They are very organized. Satan is their head, but he's got his generals, and he's got his lieutenants, and he's got his sergeants, and he's got his privates. He's got the whole thing all laid out in some kind of military format. And that's with whom we do our battle. Now, what are demons doing in the world? Satan, by the way, is one of them. He's just their leader, but one of them. What do they do? First of all, their primary role is to oppose Christ. Their primary role is to oppose Christ. Would you notice in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon was right there at the birth of Christ endeavoring to consume the child? Satan's desire is to destroy Christ. And he is still endeavoring to do that. He is still endeavoring to destroy the work of Christ to destroy the reputation of Christ, to destroy the name of Christ, and he'll do anything he can to discredit his name, discredit his church, discredit his work. He'll do anything he can to sow false teaching in the world, whether it's the Shintoism of Japan, or whether it's the Hinduism of India, or whether it's the Muslim religion of Islam of the Middle East, whatever it is, whether it's Christian science, Mormonism, or whether it's any other cult, ism, schism, spasm, yogi, occult that comes down the pike, it's the same basic kind of approach to, to attack and oppose Jesus Christ. Secondly, another effort on Satan's part is to oppose the nation Israel. It is very clear that he is after Israel. Verse 6, the woman, which remember now was Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's half the tribulation. What happens is Satan comes after Israel during the tribulation. That's nothing new. He tried to destroy Israel under Antiochus Epiphanes. He tried to destroy Israel under Adolf Hitler, massacring six million Jews. By the way, you might want to know about Adolf Hitler that when Adolf Hitler stood up and gave a speech, and we have many recordings of his speech, historians and people who were alive at that time and who knew him personally have said all down through the years that when he spoke in public, the voice that they heard was not his voice. The voice that you hear when you hear a recording of Adolf Hitler is the voice of a demon. Adolf Hitler was instructed by the black monks of Tibet who were deep infested into the occult. And he was a worshiper of Satan in a very profound way. He contacted demon medium spirits as a regular part of his life. He was a wicked man who pronounced to the world that he was the Messiah of the New Age, that he was, in fact, Jesus Christ. And he was the emissary of Satan who was demon-possessed. 
And that's the reason that his life goal was to exterminate Jews, because that is still the burning passion of Satan. Why? Because if he can destroy Israel, he can destroy the ultimate plan of God, which is to bring back the nation Israel to salvation, bring them into, an, into the kingdom which was promised to them in the Old Testament. And if they are destroyed and he can't do that, then the word of God is proven to be untrue and Christ's power is not equal to that of Satan. So he opposes Christ directly and he opposes the purposes of Christ in the nation of Israel. Thirdly, Satan opposes holy angels. There is a warfare going on that you and I can't see because it's in another dimension. But would you notice verse 7 of Revelation 12? There was war in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon and his angels. I mean, this is a cosmic war going on. It's going on right now. You can't see it because it is not perceptible to the human senses. But it's going on. There was an occasion, for example, when Daniel prayed a prayer. And you can read the book of Daniel. And God sent an angel to answer his prayer. And a demon made war with that angel. And the demon kept the angel from getting to Daniel. And so God dispatched super angel, who is Michael. Michael is always super angel. And if there's any demon who's giving God a bad time, he sends Michael, and Michael goes, you know, with a, sort of a sovereign, angelic, supernatural karate chop, lays that other demon down and sends whoever's supposed to be doing what on his way. There is a real spiritual war going on. So Satan opposes Christ, and he opposes Israel, and he opposes the holy angels, and by the way, Michael has respect for Satan. He has very much respect for Satan. He understands his power very well, better than some silly people in our society today. Let me read you about Michael in Jude 9. Michael, the archangel. He's the top of the, of the pile. Michael, super angel. When he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. Hey, the devil wanted the body of Moses. And the devil wanted to take the body of Moses and somehow desecrate it and use it for his own purposes. And God sent Michael to make sure that the devil didn't get the body of Moses. And so Michael and the devil are having an argument. And Michael didn't dare pronounce on the devil a railing judgment. He didn't pronounce any judgment on the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael knew that he, though the archangel, didn't have the full power to deal with Satan that God had. I know some silly charismatics who don't have that much sense, who are running around thinking they can bind Satan. Give me a break. Even Michael wouldn't do that. And he knows a lot more than anybody knows. In this world, you better go to the Lord. Every time I hear some guy on television say, Satan, I bind you. You know, I just say, do you think that when he says that, Satan's going to go, oh. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. What do they think he's going to do? With that many people running around binding Satan, he hasn't been able to function since the charismatic movement started in 1960. He must be off in a closet somewhere, if we bought into that. 
Even Michael knew better than that. There is a war at a supernatural level that, that we don't even belong in. And if Michael says, look, I'll go to the Lord and have him rebuke you, then that's where you better go. The fourth direction of Satan's attack comes against believers. First he attacks Christ, then he attacks Israel, and that attack continues to go on today. By the way, he's being fairly successful with Israel now because Israel is as secular and pagan a nation as there is in the world. And he opposes holy angels and he opposes believers. Go down to verse 17 of Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 17 says, And the dragon so enraged with the woman, with Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are they? The ones who keep the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's making war with us, see. There's a real spiritual war. Now, I told you about getting kicked in the shins by a demon-possessed lady who had a demon in her who knew who I was, right? There is a real spiritual warfare. The lines are drawn. Satan, demons, and ungodly people fighting against God, holy angels, and believers. That's the warfare. Paul came to the end of his life. He says, I fought a good fight. Paul says to Timothy, you better fight a good fight. Paul says to all of us, you better look at yourself as a soldier and you better get your armor on. Because this is war. This is war. Now, in the process of Satan's fight, it's him, it's his demons, and he also engulfs people with him. He uses people as his pawns, as his instruments. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. I just need to make sure you understand that. 1 Timothy chapter 4. He uses all kinds of people as his agents, unwitting, gullible, unbelieving people. You remember what Jesus said to the religious Pharisees? He said to them in John 8:44, "You are of your father, whom? The devil. You do his work. You do his bidding." The Jews are saying, we've never been in bondage to any man. What do you mean? We serve God. We've, we're free. We've never been in bondage to any man. And Jesus says to them, huh, you're of your father, the devil. You serve him. You serve him. Look at 1 Timothy 4. Here's an illustration of it. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that's these times right now, some will fall away from the faith because they pay attention to deceitful spirits. Now listen to this. Deceitful spirits who are propagating demonic doctrine by means of hypocritical liars. Now did you follow that flow? People are led away from the truth. Like the Shintoism of Japan. They are led away from the truth by deceitful demons propagating their false doctrine through the mouths of liars. There's where the human instrumentation comes in. False teachers are not just harmless people. They are hypocritical liars spouting demon doctrine motivated by deceitful spirits. It's a very serious thing. So Satan collects those kinds of hypocritical liars as false teachers, false prophets, to espouse his doctrine. And he says in verse 2, they're unconscionable. 
It's as if their conscience has been seared with a hot iron and all there is there is scar tissue that can't feel anything. The nerves are dead, so they don't seem to be bothered by the fact of what they're doing. This is reality. This is reality. Now, let's get down to us. I mean, we can't do anything about what's going on with God and Satan. We know there's conflict at that level because the book of Job says Satan came into the presence of God and they had a conflict. We know there's conflict between the fallen angels and the holy angels, but we can't get involved in that. I mean, we could sit on the sidelines and root, I guess, but we can't really get involved. But where we get involved in this whole thing is where Satan moves against us. Now, how does he do that? How does he do that? Let me just give you a little outline about how he does it. Next Monday, we're going to talk about some of the solutions. But let's talk about how he attacks, just so we set this in place. First of all, how does Satan attack and capture non-Christians? That's very important to him. He's got to collect people. And what he wants to do is collect people for hell because everybody he gets, Christ doesn't get. That's, that's his perspective. That's not God's perspective. That's his perspective. So how does he attack? How does he move? Let's go to 2 Corinthians, find out. Chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, 3. And even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing. In other words, perishing people can't see the truth. Why? Verse 4. In whose case? The God of this world. Who's that? Who's the God of this world? Satan. Satan called the God of this age. He's called the Prince of the Power of the Air in Ephesians 2. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the first thing that Satan does is come in and blind people's minds. How does he do that? Is that some spacey deal? Is that some sort of supernatural thing where he goes inside your head and drops the blinds? No. He blinds their minds through a number of things. Ignorance, false teaching, confusion, lots of things. So that they can't see truth, don't want to see truth. He, he comes along and when the truth lands, remember the parable of Jesus of the seed that fell on the hard ground? And he snatches it away. How does he do that? Can he make you forget? No. No, he can't. I don't think he can make you forget. But he can put something else in your path. He can make you ex be exposed to error, confusion. He can take an unbeliever and show him a a person who claims to be a Christian who's living a wretched, ugly, sinful life and say, that's what a Christian is. Is that what you want to be? He can do a lot of things. He can bring the smoke screen of lies and lies and lies through the educational process. He can expose them to immorality and immorality and drive them by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to so love their sin that they don't want anything to do with anything that's going to cause them to have to change their lifestyle. He can use a lot of things. Fleshly gratification, love of sin, ignorance, unbelief, confusion, false religion, lies. He uses it all. 
He feeds the lust of the flesh. He feeds the lust of the eyes. He feeds the pride of life. And He feeds them that through the world, through the system. It's all out there. I mean, you don't have to... You don't have to have a demon make you lust. Just go to a filthy movie or sit there and stare at a dirty magazine. That'll take care of it. Satan might be in India. Might not even be any demons around. But the system which he creates and which the demons organize and through which they move in this world creates the point of temptation. And it captures the minds of the unbelieving. The question for us, though, is how does he attack Christians? How does he attack us? Well, same way. By creating a system in which we are engulfed, which pulls at the lust of the flesh, which pulls at the lust of the eyes, which pulls at the pride of life. And you watch our culture. Just, I mean, open your eyes and watch our culture. What is happening in American culture is that Satan is more and more dominant. Now, there, there are probably demons that are in key positions to run their program in the United States, just like there, there were in ancient times. You remember the Prince of Tyre? The Prince of Tyre, the one who ran Tyre, the Prince of Tyre was a demon, and he was behind the king. He was energizing the whole system. Believe me, when you look at the agencies and organizations in America that are destroying our morality, those are being orchestrated by demon spirits. There's no question about that. Who have captivated the hearts of these people, these unbelievers, and now they are the hypocritical liars who are spawning the doctrines of demons coming from deceitful spirits that is taking our society right down the proverbial drain. And it's that system which engulfs us. I mean, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life should be by Christians considered the most dangerous the most dangerous points of access but think about it we have a society that exalts the lust of the flesh right if it feels good what what does you light up my life say this can't be wrong it feels so right so whatever you feel and whatever you desire i mean and now it doesn't matter what it is i mean even homosexuality which once was a word people didn't even want to say and now we have uh, Gay Pride Week. You know, why not Fornication Pride Week? Adultery Pride Week. All the adulterers need to march. How about Murderers Week? We'll have them all march. How about Child Molesters Week? By the way, they just... Uh, raised a new statue, a statue of a woman, I think it's on the East Coast, or maybe in Washington, in honor of all of the women who have died having abortions. That's interesting. A statue in honor of killers. Now see, when, when, when society begins to exalt the lust of the flesh, you can see that it's being orchestrated by Satan. How about the lust of the eyes? If there's anything that's also true about our society, not only are we completely given over to the flesh with no compunctions, but we're completely given over to obtaining every single thing that we can see, right? 
materialism gone stark raving mad. The third one is the pride of life. And we think boasting now is honorable. I think I'm good. I hear people say that all the time. I think I'm pretty good. I think I deserve... We exalted pride. See, we flipped the whole thing over showing who's in control of our society. America is not a Christian nation. America is a nation that's lost the spiritual warfare. And here we live in this society which, instead of seeing the lust of the flesh as an evil thing, sees it as something to be gratified and honored and exalted. Instead of seeing the lust of the eyes, something to be feared, sees it as something to be entertained and indulged in. Instead of seeing pride of life as a curse, sees pride of life as the ultimate dignity. Reverse the whole thing, which tells us exactly where we are. So, young people, we live in a culture that is very, very much dominated by satanic forces. Now, how does Satan come at us personally? Not only from the culture, but does he come at us personally through his demons? Well, yes. Let me give you just a couple of brief suggestions. First of all, he comes at us as individuals. 1 Peter 5.8, very important, says, and when it talks about the devil, I think it talks not only about him, but his, ag his agents as well. It says, you better be sober... In other words, you better know your spiritual priorities. You better get your spiritual act together. You better be living a life that honors God. Why? You better be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? Devour. You better be on the alert. You better put your defense up at the point of the lust of the flesh and the point of the lust of the eyes and the point of the pride of life, as 1 John 2 says, because that's the way he's going to get you and he's going to eat you up. He is going to have you for lunch. That's his goal. So he attacks individuals. In Luke 22, he attacked Peter and Jesus said, Satan desires to have you. What's a strange statement. Luke 22, Satan desires to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, he said, I have prayed for you. And when you've gone through this, you'll come out okay. But Satan is after you, Peter. And Satan was. And it showed up right after that. When Peter was there by the fire and three times, what did he do? He denied Christ. And Satan sifted him. So Satan comes at individuals who aren't alert and who haven't got their spiritual priorities right. Secondly, he comes at families. Satan wants to destroy the Christian family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a very important statement is made there that often gets overlooked in verse 3. It says, Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, Stop depriving one another. Now, wasn't that an interesting thing? He's talking about sexual relationships talking about conjugal relationship. He's saying, look, as a man, as a husband, you have to give yourself to meet your wife's needs. As a woman, you have to completely give yourself to meet your husband's needs. Don't ever, ever deprive one another in a marriage. Don't ever do that. Why? Because if you do that, except by agreement for a time of prayer, except for some spiritual exercise... If you do that, Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, what Satan would want to do is get into a family 
and caused the wife to withhold the physical from her husband, the husband to withhold the physical from the wife, so that there becomes a lack of self-control, and that leads to the disintegration of that marriage. That's why it's so foolish to be running around the country like one guy is, who is single, by the way, and telling people to abstain from sexual relationships in marriage for two weeks every month because that's spiritual. That's not spiritual. That's ridiculous. From the standpoint that it opens up Satan to come in and tempt. So he wants to destroy families. Third thing, he wants to attack leadership. He wants to attack leadership in the church. In Paul's letter to First first letter to Timothy, he says to him in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, whenever you're looking for a leader in the church, very important, make sure he's not a new convert, lest he becomes conceited and falls into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, there's two ways to interpret that. He could say, lest the man becomes proud and falls into the same kind of trap that Satan fell into when he became proud. But to interpret it that way, it might mean that God had lifted up Satan too soon when he was still, quote-unquote, a new angel or whatever. The other way to interpret that is that he is really saying, if you lift up a man too high in leadership before he's ready, he'll be tempted. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The devil would like to discredit leadership. That's the main idea. The devil would like to discredit leadership. He wants to devastate the people in leadership. As I was preaching last night at Grace Church, he wants them to do what they do under compulsion for wrong motives. He wants them to do what they do for sordid gain for money. He wants them to do what they do in order that they might lord it over people, be autocratic, and have a power base. Satan will corrupt leadership any way he can, with money, with women, with power, any way he can. And finally, he wants to come in and destroy the church. He starts with individuals whom he wants to devour. He goes to families that he wants to destroy. He moves to the leaders that he wants to totally discredit. And, of course, he wants to come in and devastate the church. And how does he do that? 2 Corinthians 11:13. He comes as a false apostle, a deceitful worker, disguising himself as an apostle of Christ, disguised as an angel of light. And he comes in and he starts to destroy the church through false teaching, false doctrine. That's why Paul writes to Timothy and says, teach sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. says it over and over. Guard the treasure of sound doctrine. So, Satan wants to capture the unbelievers and hold them for eternity so that they'll be in hell forever and God can't have them. He comes after believers as individuals, as families. He comes after the leaders and he comes in to try to tear the church to ribbons through false teaching. Now, we are definitely in a spiritual war. There's no question. Now, the only thing that remains to be discussed is how do we fight, right? How do we Second Corinthians 11, 13. He comes as a false apostle, a deceitful worker, disguising himself as an apostle of Christ, 
disguised as an angel of light. And he comes in and he starts to destroy the church through false teaching, false doctrine. That's why Paul writes to Timothy and says, teach sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. He says it over and over. Guard the treasure of sound doctrine. So, Satan wants to capture the unbelievers and hold them for eternity so that they'll be in hell forever and God can't have them. He comes after believers as individuals, as families. He comes after the leaders and he comes in to try to tear the church to ribbons through false teaching. Now, we are definitely in a spiritual war. There's no question. Now, the only thing that remains to be discussed is how do we fight, right? How do we fight? You're going to have to wait till next week. Next Monday we'll find out how to fight. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thanks.